we have a great uh, many visitors with us this morning, and we want to thank you for coming. Let me say that we've been going through a series of expositional sermons that is seeking to understand from the pages of the gospel according to Luke, the life of our Lord. Uh, last week, we looked into two of the healing miracles of our Savior. Uh, he was on the way to uh, answer a plea for mercy for the president of the synagogue, whose name was Jairus. His little daughter was very sick. And on the way there to heal her, Jesus was thronged and pressed by a great crowd of people. And a woman who had some dreadful disease for just as long as the little girl had been alive, 12 years, sneaked through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment and was healed. Uh, he perceived that healing power had gone out from himself, and so he asked, who touched me? And when she came forward, then uh, Jesus told her that her faith in him uh, had healed her and that she could go in peace. He then went on to Jairus' house and there raised this little girl from the dead, taking with him Peter and James and John. Now, because we are coming rapidly next Sunday to Palm Sunday, and the lesson will be in the 19th chapter of Luke, I want to show you some interesting things that uh, Luke is going to teach us. Uh, now, today we come to a great confession of faith that Jesus makes, that is made of Jesus by his disciples, recognizing him as the Messiah. Following this, he will go up to the Mount of Transfiguration. So if you um, have your Bibles, uh, you can turn in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 9, at verse 18. And it came about that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the multitude say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of, the, of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who shall save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly that there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James, and he went up to a mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were standing with him, and they were Moses and Elijah who appearing in glory were speaking to him of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, 
But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And it came about, as these were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Amen. We have been studying in the Gospel according to Luke many of the wonderful things which Jesus did and said. You will remember that weeks ago, back before Christmas, we saw that Luke was careful to say that in reporting the things that were believed among Christians, believers, that he wanted his friend Theophilus, to whom he was writing, to understand that he had carefully searched out facts for him. I tried to stress then, as I stress again today, there's a very grave mistake whenever you drive a wedge between the words of Jesus and the deeds of Jesus. The words that he spoke are beautiful, matchless, golden, powerful words, and they are to be held not only in esteem, but is our absolute law by which we are to live. But the deeds which he did authenticate the reality of the truth which he spoke. And we must not separate his words from his deeds, as some people in their understanding of Scripture try to do. The deeds of Jesus prove what he did. There are people who try to say that the miracles which we read about are not really miracles, but sort of acted out parables. Well, this is nonsense if you are objective in looking at Scripture. The writers of the Gospels are perfectly clear in understanding what parables are, and so if there is a parable about a sower, they tell us that it's a parable, and they tell us it's a story that Jesus told. If someone is going to be healed, they don't say that this is a parable. They say that it's something that he actually did, a deed. And so there we are faced with making a decision. Are we going to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be? Or are we going to uh, relegate him to some beautiful teacher whose deeds will not stand up uh, to the light of careful uh, scholarship and research? His deeds do stand up, and he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Well, Jesus was praying, and during this time of prayer, his disciples questioned him. He asked them a question. Who do people say that I am? And you will remember this passage from Matthew 16 and also from Mark 8 because it's one of the most important passages in the Synoptic Gospels. It it's, marks what is called a watershed. A watershed is where the water is going to fall one way or the other and go that way. Now here is a high mark. And here is where Jesus is going to tell them who he is and what's going to happen to him. They have seen Jesus as he has healed a leper. They have seen him raised 
uh, raise a dead person. They have seen Jairus' little daughter raised. They have seen the woman healed. They have seen lepers healed. Uh, many miracles have taken place. And so Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Well, they say there are those who say that you're John the Baptist because by this time John had been put to death by Herod. And John was a very popular figure. And this shows that in some regions he may have even been more popular than our Lord himself at this particular time because that's what came to their mind. They said, why some people say that you're John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now remember who John was, that he was a fiery, powerful preacher of judgment against that which was wrong. So there must have been an element of this in Jesus' preaching which remind them of John the Baptist in his fearless denunciation of what was phony and what was wrong in the sight of God. Some said, you remind us of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, because they had seen Jesus burdened over the sins of his people, burdened over the way Israel had trampled underfoot the truth of God. They said, some say that you're like Elijah, that powerful figure at Mount Carmel, who called people to make a decision. But then Jesus asked the question, but who do you say that I am? Now that's where we begin this morning. Because the most important thing that can go through your mind in your entire life is your answer to this question because on it depends your eternal destiny. Who do you say that Jesus is? And an answer to it, not just with lip service or intellectual assent, will determine how you will live. People do what they do because they believe what they believe. That's why last week I warned about cults. That's why I used the old ad from the Abbott and Costello show about camel cigarettes. 150,000, whatever it was, doctors recommend that you smoke camels. I read that to my doctor-to-be son last night. He said he was going to put it up on his room down at Duke Medical School. Uh, doctors don't recommend this anymore. You don't recommend it for a very simple reason. It's untrue. It's unkind. It's against life. Well, now, you believe what you believe on the basis of the evidence that's put forth here, and that will reflect what you allowed Jesus to be in your own life and thinking, the decisions that you make day by day, how you treat your mother father, how you treat your wife or your children, how you work at your work, what you do. All of this is going to be reflected in that. Uh, there is a Roman Catholic magazine, uh, I've been teasing uh, Rocanti, who is my favorite Catholic, uh, uh, this morning about uh, uh, this, but you, you got a great magazine, uh, Richard, I hope you read uh, it. Not long ago, someone in that magazine wrote a 20th century interpretation of that encounter at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asked his disciples, who uh, do you say that I am? Now, this is what the Catholic theologian wrote. Uh, they... they they responded, that is the disciple, uh, G, uh, Peter responded, quote, you are the eschatological manifestation of the foundation of our being, the kerygma in which we find the ultimate signification of our interpersonal relation. <laughs> now let me add quickly that uh, Peter didn't say that 
And Jesus didn't say, my Father in heaven revealed that to you. This is what some theologians said, because that's theological double talk. Uh, it's, it's a way that people have of talking when they want to get away from the business of living uh, under the lordship of Christ in a simple, personal, direct way. So it's a lot simpler than that. And so he wants us to know it. Jesus tells us, who do men say that I am? And after they had given him these answers, Peter answered with that magnificent reply when Jesus said, but who do you say I am? Thou art the Christ. And Matthew puts it in a fuller account, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, no man can say that Jesus is Lord. That means that he controls his life and really mean it apart from the Holy Spirit. No brilliant preacher, no books of argument, nothing else will ever cause you to say that Jesus is Lord and mean it except the work of the blessed Holy Spirit himself revealing that truth to you and persuading and enabling you to lay hold upon that truth. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite stories about Dwight L. Moody is when some drunk staggered up to him in a meeting and said, Mr. Moody, I'm one of, you, one of your converts. And Moody said, you what, must be one of mine. You're not one of the Lord's. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, so you have to be careful. The work of the Holy Spirit is the only one who reveals us who Jesus is. Now, Jesus tells us that important things happen as a result of that. He was saying, uh, after, after that, he began to say, do you know what I'm going to have to do? You think of the Christ as someone who is going to be resplendent and treated with honor and glory among the people? He said, but I'm going to have to go to a cross and die. And then Peter who always had to take one foot out of his mouth to change feet, uh, Peter said, Far be it from thee, Lord, this shall never happen unto you. And then Jesus had to rebuke Peter. He had to deal him a real shocking body blow, slap him right in the face, and say, Peter, you talk like the devil. That's who you talk like. That's what the devil told me in the temptation. That's who you talk like. You savor the things of men. You want this to be done men's way and not God's way. You see, what happened is that Peter didn't want, nor did any of the other disciples for that matter, they did not want a crucified, gory-headed, bleeding Savior nailed on a cross. Only a broken heart can receive a crucified Lord. So Peter made a big mistake when he said that. And Jesus corrected him. Now let me say this. Jesus had said to Peter upon this rock, and really this has nothing to do with the motion picture, but uh, what he actually says in, it, when he changed Peter's name to rock, he called him really rocky. He, he says, thou art rocky, little rock. And upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now he means by that, those who make a confession like Peter has made and mean it, Peter meant it. He didn't understand a lot. You remember not long ago I used an illustration back uh, 
I think it must have been way back in October, uh, about uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. There are people who say I'm not a Christian because my mother and daddy said they were Christians and they fought all the time and they were such fakes, or I'm not a Christian because this old Sunday school teacher I had was a thief, and, and uh, they're all hypocrites in the church. Well, you, you know, people can use that as, an, as a, an excuse when you're 15 or 16 or 17 or 18. But when you get to be 30, it begins to get to be a lame excuse. And then when you get to be 40, it's not a good excuse at all. And then when you get to be 50 or 60 or 70, what are you going to do then? If it's still an excuse by that time, you need a psychiatrist. Uh, because that's, neurotic, uh, that's psychotic by that time. You're obsessed with something that's totally wrong. So I said then, you do not accept or reject Christianity because some people you know or work with or see are phonies. I said at that time that if Beethoven's Ninth Symphony was being played by the Mount Pisgah band and chorus, and you heard it, and it was lousily played, you wouldn't go away and say, well, Beethoven is sure a crummy composer. You might jump on the, the Mount Pisgah High School, and I hope you're not listening this morning. Uh, but uh, you might jump on their high school, but you can't jump on Beethoven. But let me take this another step further and refine this illustration a little bit. Don't even jump on Mount Pisgah too much, because at least they tried to play it. And you wouldn't have even heard about Beethoven if someone hadn't tried and even if there are some crummy Christians who don't live up to what they're supposed to live up to, maybe you wouldn't have even known about Jesus if you hadn't seen some of them. So remember that too. So Peter had to be sternly rebuked by his Lord. Sternly rebuked. But Jesus said, on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And all of us know and love the fact that Peter was faithful to his Lord when he was tried by fire and finally crucified head down in Rome. He went with his Lord all the way, all the way to prison and to a horrible death. And his beautiful life and what we have in the Gospel of Mark is largely Peter's memoirs. And then we have first and second Peter. And I love him. I love him so much because he's so human. And yet the Lord Jesus said, I'll build my church upon Peter just like people just like Peter, this blustering, bumbling heart who gave himself over to me. Now then, after Jesus has said this, he begins to say that if we follow him, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. We like to leave that out. We think we ought to take it up from 11 to 12 every Sunday morning and then leave it at the church when we walk out. But it doesn't work that way. Take up the cross daily and follow me. And follow me. That means continue to follow me. And the rules have not suspended. This was not written just for those Christians who lived in the time in which our Lord walked upon the earth. And now in 1980 in March in Gaither Chapel, we don't have to live this way anymore. No, the rules have not been changed. The rules for discipleship are precisely the same as they were then. 
And that demands every single thing of us. All of us have to belong to Jesus Christ. And then Jesus uttered those words which in the King James I memorized as a child. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul as the King James puts it? What would you give in exchange for Jesus? There's an old illustration that crops out every now and then, and I, I looked at some old cuttings that I had because it came out of a newspaper. We're going through an economic crunch right now. In 1923, there was a gathering of some of America's most important people at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago, in Illinois. Collectively, those men controlled more money than the entire treasury of the United States of America. Those present were the president of the largest independent steel company, the president of the largest utility company, the greatest wheat speculator, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the president's cabinet, the greatest bear on Wall Street, the president of the Bank of International Settlements, and the head of the world's greatest monopoly. Now, when you think of all the money and the power and the prestige, you'd be th tempted to think that they'd gained it all. And yet a reporter went back 25 years later and did some research. In 1948, he went back and did a study of those very same men. And do you know what happened to them? This is what happened to them. The president of the largest steel company, whose name was Charles Schwab, lived on borrowed money and for the last 25 years of his life and died broke. The greatest wheat speculator on was a man by the name of Arthur Sutton, and he died abroad broke. The president of the New York Stock Exchange was Richard Whitney, and he had just been released from Sing Sing prison. The member of the president's cabinet was Albert Fall, who had been pardoned from prison so he could go home and die. The greatest bear on Wall Street was Jesse Livermore. He had committed suicide. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Frazier, had committed suicide. The head of the world's greatest monopoly was Ivan Kruger, and he had committed suicide. What does it matter? If we used to sing a song in our little church out in Texas. Uh, what would it matter if I gained the world and lost the Savior? Life wouldn't be worth living for a day. So Jesus tells them this very plainly here. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, his true being, his true life? And then he says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his power and glory. And then he took them up into the mountain apart. I've often tried to imagine this picture. Jesus liked to pray at night. The Garden of Gethsemane is a time when he prays at night. Maybe he walked up a mountain, some like, something like walking up to the top of Lookout here. And he took with him just these three, Peter, James, and John. I've often wondered why he chose them for special events like this. It must have been because he sensed in them some knowledge of what was going to happen to himself and how they would relate to it. James would later be put to death as the first of the 
Christian martyrs, the first apostle to die. And James had been one of those, you remember, that he had taken into the room when he raised Jairus' little daughter for the, from the dead. And I'm sure when he was arrested and the guards came in and said, James, we're going to cut your head off. You'll die today, James. James said, I've been through all this before. This doesn't get to me like you think it does if you're trying to frighten me. Maybe that's why he took James up into that mountain with him to pray. Later, he'll take James into the Garden of Gethsemane. And Peter, Peter who will later be tried by fire and who will be crucified head down, and John who will be exiled on Patmos, these three were close to him, so he takes them apart. And there in that mountain, confirming the confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is this marvelous, what is called a theophany, a manifestation of God in a visible, unusual form. And here comes this appearance in which Jesus is transformed, metamorphosed is the word. And you know where that word's used again? It's used in Romans chapter 12 of Christians, where it says that we are not to be conformed to the way the world lives, but we are to be transformed. Properly speaking, Jesus was metamorphosed in Bethlehem when God became flesh and he dwelt among us. But here is a manifestation of the glory of who he is, God incarnate in human flesh. And Peter, uh, Peter who is never at a loss for words, wants to enshrine this moment. And so he says to Jesus, Lord, let us build here three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Mark mercifully adds, for he did not know what to say. And he always said something even when he didn't know what to say. And so the Lord, uh, he, you know what his impulse was? It's what we put as the title of the sermon, the building of shrines. He wanted to enshrine, to encapsulate that moment and just keep it. And we come to that in life. There are always good things that happen to us and we're so scared to say anything about it because we think later on something bad's going to happen. Ronald Reagan the other day when he had won the Illinois primary, and I'm not endorsing any candidate, but you, you see this there. Someone came to him because he'd had a right significant victory and they said, are you going to announce that you have the convention locked up? And after Iowa, he ain't about to do that. So he said, no. He said, he said, I've learned not to do that. Well, you could tell he was very happy. His face was just glowing with joy that he had won decisively. But he wasn't going to say any more than that because he thought something worse might happen to him down the road to balance this out. And that's a tendency that all of us have, isn't it? It's a tendency that comes to us in life. Well, they wanted to, Peter wanted to enshrine this moment and keep it because Jesus had been talking with the representative of the law Moses, who also had gone up into a mountain and, re and had received from God the law and whose face had shone with the glory of God from the mountain, who also had been taken from this earth in an unusual way for no man knows his sepulcher. And no man saw it there for the angels of God have turned the sod and laid the dead man there. Uh, Moses, who goes out in an unusual way. 
and Elijah, who represents the prophets, who also was translated in an unusual way taken from this world. These two are chosen of all of those in the Old Testament. And what the law and what the prophets couldn't do will be accomplished in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because in the cross of Christ will be the payment for our sins. In the cross of Jesus Christ, we will die to self. In the cross of Christ is our only, only glory. Peter wanted to enshrine the moment, to freeze it, to keep it in place. Another thing about shrines, you, you, if you make a shrine, then you think you can sort of keep that. But Jesus wants us to know that the glory of God is a living presence. That Jesus was going to be with them when they came down the mountain and when they went on to, through life and when Peter went all the way to Rome and to death. And that he would be with you and me too. And that we're not to enshrine. Not to enshrine. You remember a few weeks ago I referred to this little book of Severe Mercy by Sheldon Van Auken. I highly recommend it to you. It's an incredibly beautiful and moving love story. Once you start to read it, you can barely put it down. It's so closely and so well written and so graphically written. In fact, when the book came out, it, the first printing sold out within three weeks. And it had to be reprinted again and again. It's the story about two people who fell deeply in love with each other. And they wanted to keep everything else. They were not Christians when they fell in love. They, they were intellectuals. They were romanticists and uh, idyllic in their love. But they made a god out of their love. And they created what one of the chapters is called the shining barrier. That they would never allow anything to come into their relationship with each other. Not even God. And then you know the story of how they went over to go to school at Oxford. And how Davy, the woman, becomes interested in the Christian faith and her husband, Van, becomes interested. And then they enter into a dialogue with uh, a C.S. Lewis through correspondence and through reading some of his books. And finally they become convinced that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And they are baptized and they become believers in him and become Christians. And then David has this mysterious disease and they come back to Lynchburg in Virginia and she lingers and then dies. And this book is an account of the experience through which they passed. Now that shining barrier that we talked about some time ago and which is put in here is something that has to be broken. And Lewis, in one of the most beautiful letters that he wrote in this book, a letter that I'm going to print in the bulletin next Sunday so you can have it. One way or another, he said to Van Auken after his wife had died, one way, can you imagine writing this to a man whose wife had died? One way or another, the thing had to die, that is their love for each other. Perpetual springtime is not allowed. You were not cutting the wood of life according to the grain. There are various possible ways in which it could have died, though both the parties went on living. You have been treated with a severe mercy. That's where it gets its title. When God breaks the barrier, it's a severe mercy. 
You have been brought to see how true and how very frequent this is, that you were jealous of God. So from us, you have been led back to us and God, and it remains for you now to go on to God and us. She was further along than you were, and she can help you more where she is now than she could have done on earth. You must go on. That's one of the many reasons why suicide is out of the question. Last night, a man called me after midnight to tell me that he wanted to do away with himself. Another is the absence of any ground of believing that death by that route would reunite you with her. Why should it? You might be digging an eternally unbridgeable chasm. Disobedience is not the way to get nearer to the obedient. I told the man last night, you can kill your body, you can't kill your soul. There's no other man in such affliction as yours to whom I dare write so plainly. And that if you can believe, and that if you believe me is the strongest proof of my love for you. This is what Lewis is writing to this man. To fools and weaklings, one writes soft things. You spared her very wrongly the pains of childbirth. They wouldn't even have any children because they didn't want anything to interfere with their love for each other. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are people for uh, good reasons in their prayer and the will of God do not have children. But here, Lewis is admonishing him against this. Do not evade your own travail. You must undergo while Christ is being born in you. Do you imagine that she herself can now have any greater care about you than this spiritual maternity of yours should be patiently suffered and joyfully delivered? And then Lewis, in his very sweet and humble way, signs that God bless you. Please pray for me. Now then, this is what Sheldon Van Auken says in response to that letter. After this severe and splendid letter, I loved Lewis like a brother. In fact, like a brother and a father combined. If I had been tempted at all to break my promise to Davy about following her by my own hand, that is, by suicide, the temptation vanished after one horrible look at Lewis's phrase, eternally unbridgeable chasm. Now, what happened is that the shrine was broken and something living came out of that broken shrine. And that's what Jesus wants Peter and James and John to know, that the shrine has to be broken, that he will go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, and that the tendency to enshrine these moments so that we can control them is not God's way because God's way is not a picture. Would you rather have a picture of your loved one, even by the most famous photo photographer in the world, or had you rather have the loved one? Of course, you would rather have the living presence of the person, himself or herself. Well, what Jesus is saying, you don't want this thing that you've asked for, this enshrinement up here. What you really want is me. And so down from the mountain they go, down to the valley where there are people waiting to be helped and healed. And from the moments that we get glimpses of the glory of who Jesus is and what he suffered, 
there comes to each one of us the responsibility to go from the church to live for his glory. Dr. Billy Graham and I have talked often about invitations. He is the most remarkable person at giving an invitation for people to accept Christ as Savior. And I marvel, I've seen people criticize him. They say the music does it or something else does it. I've seen him when there was no music at all. And the most emotional thing I've ever heard was just the sound of people walking forward. That was far more emotional to me than all the choruses of Just As I Am. Those people walking. And Billy and I were talking one day after a service here in Gaither Chapel. And he agreed that even more important than walking forward in the church to come down the aisle is walking out of the church with Christ in your heart, down from the mountain, away from the preaching of the word, out back when you're going to get into the car, go over to the cafeteria, back into the dormitory, and live a life that is crucified to self and alive unto Jesus Christ. We will omit the last hymn, and we will stand now for our closing prayer. The love of Jesus, what it is. None but his loved ones know, but they know. Father, we want to say with Paul that we want to know Jesus. We want to know him in the power of his resurrection. We want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering. We want to knowing, know him in some faint semblance of Gethsemane and the cross where we die to self that he might live his life out in us. Someone here today needs to make that decision of giving his or her life forever to Jesus. No turning back. Help that person today to break the shining barrier, to break the shrine instinct, not to keep their life anymore, but to lose their life, to find it again in him. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all now and forevermore.